Welcome to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. I'm James Moore. And I'm Kate Oda. Today we are going to be talking about the book Sweet Little Lies by Kaz Freer. It is a crime mystery novel that takes place in London, England, and Ireland. And it follows Kat. She's a detective, and she has this case that she's trying to solve that intertwines with a missing person from her childhood that she thinks her dad is somehow related to, and then the death of a girl in the town where she works, and and how that's all connected. Not to throw James under the bus, but (laughs) he did not finish the book, which is okay. It'll be interesting to hear his perspective because the very end of the book is really when you find out who's lying about what and pretty much everyone is lying about everything. I'll start off with you. So what did you think of the book up until the point you got and kind of what are your predictions for what you think would happen based on what you read? I'll say that um, I got through about... It was the the main part of the book was about it's a little over four hundred pages and I got about two ninety in and was reading what's going on. It's it's exciting to know that there was so much lying and everything going on because I thought I had a lot of the book figured out. The dynamic between Cat and her father was um, a good sideline as far as you know getting involved in getting in a cat in the cat's head and all the daddy issues that she has and how it's affecting her job and affecting the case really. And her view of it and how it's going. And early on, just because of that dynamic, I knew that her father didn't have anything to do with the murder as far as doing it himself. That was a prediction. She was attracted to the, um, what was it? Um, was it her brother that was long lost brother? Yeah, that, Marianne's brother, Aiden. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought Aiden. you were saying Kat's brother. I was like, <laughs> I don't remember not, that. No, that was no, that, that guy. He was no, was useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a person, he was, you know, kind of, he was written that way. Anybody that Kat was going to be interested in, I figured it was going to be involved at some way in in the disappearance or the murder that would challenge her. And that's what I kind of saw happening. As far as that goes, basically, I knew that something had to be worked out between Kat and her father as far as resolving all the issues that they have between them. And also with her sister, because, you know, she kind of hated her sister because of the fact that her sister kind of put dad up on the pedestal and doesn't see dad how he really is and that sort of thing. That's all I have to contribute right now. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you think? I mean, I liked it. There were a couple things that I felt like I had seen before. So, for example, the the cop with the dad who's in the crime world, uh, that's been done in Bones. Uh, the TV show, I feel like it's been in something else as like a source of tension for the cop. Does she choose family or does she choose work? And this one, she obviously chose family because she was not bringing it up. And I was like, oh, oh, ethics violation. There's going to be so much paperwork that she's going to have to do <laughs> when all of this comes to light. And I was just dreading that paperwork for her. <laughs> but I, I didn't see the twist coming, I think because I don't know enough about Ireland and its laws and why someone would leave Ireland and go to London at a certain age as a young lady. And so I, I missed that, like, whoop, over my head. But once we got to the apartment with the prostitute who was like, I don't know her, I was like, yes, you do. <laughs> and then the photo was found, I was like, yes! 
and then, you know, we, we unraveled it. I figured her dad had moved Marianne, obviously alive, right, because she died like 10 years later, but I, I didn't really know why, and when it came out, like, oh, it's because she was kind of blackmailing him to take her, I was like, oh, hmm, that's... <laughs> That's a little less, like, zesty than I was hoping for. Yeah. But I'm sure that her dad, being involved in the crime world, will continue on with other books in this series. Right. Because I'm sure that's not where his involvement ended. Yeah, I really I really enjoyed the book. I mean, obviously, the title of the book, Sweet Little Lies, we know that people are going to be lying. So I was kind of looking for that. But it was also all of them. They were all lying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which... To me, I was like, well, okay, well, why did they lie the first time? And then the next time they have like a completely different story and they're like, okay, well, this is okay. You told us the truth now. And then later it's like, oh yeah, here's like everything else that I lied about and I didn't tell you. So it was one revelation at a time. Like, okay, here's this little bit of information that I'll kind of reveal to you right now, but I was lying about everything else. And then the next time, oh yeah, that was like only kind of the truth. Here's the real truth. It was everyone's self-interest and I'm I am impressed that she was able to make so many lies and keep track and the characters could keep track of all their lies they had told and some of them had been telling the lies for a very long time as soon as we found out that Marianne had given up her baby I was like "Ooh, it's one of Gina's kids I got I guess that right away because she was talking about her struggles with infertility and I couldn't remember when I was reading it, if it was the the son or the daughter that was hers biologically, or she was saying biologically. But I was like, hmm, that's really interesting that, you know, they have this connection. We don't know what their connection is yet, but she gave up a baby. So the first baby that's going to be given up, of course, has to go to the, the woman who was also really longing for a kid. And then, and then I started thinking like, oh yeah, that's the reason why she killed Marianne, because she somehow like wanted the baby back. Like I thought maybe she knew the whole time that that her son was there and then when she decided in her life she finally wanted kids and couldn't that she's like well I'm gonna go get him back Um, I didn't realize that she had no idea until she saw him and then made the connection so surprise Gina Gina killed Marianne Gina killed Marianne. I thought technically Marianne's son killed Marianne. Technically. Mar- um, well, no, the Gina's stairs, dad. The stairs killed him. Gina's dad, the old man, the sick old man. He was a crime boss hiding from the law. Holy Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Gina's son was actually Marianne's son. And they had a whole human trafficking thing going on. Yeah, like pregnant girls from Ireland who came to London to get an abortion because Ireland had anti-abortion laws. So they went uh. to London to get it done and then they'd get picked up and be like, sweetie, you don't really want to kill them. We'll, we'll take it away from you. It'll be fine. You don't have to kill anybody. And they'd be like, oh my God, that's so much better. Right. And, and you get like $10,000. Yeah. You don't have to get an abortion. Your kid, they thought, so was, it was going... So black market baby thing. Black market baby So they thought that the babies were going towards, like, nice families. Yeah. They just really wanted a baby, but really they were being shipped off who knows where. Oh, my gosh. Except for Marianne's baby, which Gina took as her own. Okay. Yeah. Okay, then. Yeah, that's a twist for me, because I yeah. didn't think that Gina No, I would was, ever would have guessed that. I, wouldn't, I did not guess that she was in... Involved in that way. Now, Gina's husband... Oh, he was a, a dumb shit. Yeah, yeah, he knew nothing. But as soon as they ran into a prostitute, I said, well, he's seen her. But he wasn't. They lied about that. They did. They oh! Lied. It's a lie! So the prostitute 
was actually one of the, she worked at an abortion clinic and she was there in to figure out like which girls might be interested in this. Yeah. So her and Marianne were really good friends earlier, like when they were doing so all this. So she was like, she was the scout. Yeah. yeah. She was scout out pregnant girl. And so she keep, wasn't a, a prostitute. She is. Yeah, now she is. Oh. Yeah. But oh. back before. So Gina is really the one that was kind of running all this because her dad ran all of it back in the day when she was younger. The crime and, boss. Right. Yeah. And then she kind of took over. But now it sounds like her husband is kind of the, you know, the henchman for her dad because he's sickly and hiding. And then her son, who's really Marianne's son, is being trained to be... To take over. Right. Yeah. So how Marianne died was she went over there because she had no money. So she was really going there to confront Gina and, like, figure out what happened to her son. And Marianne pushed her down the stairs, but she saw her actual son and they made the connection. And so Gina asked her dad to take care of it. So he kind of did most of the work, but he was trying to get the son to kill her. He didn't know that was his real mom. So that's why she had like little cuts on her neck because he tried but couldn't. So then the grandpa ended up just strangling. But yeah, so. Was he the one that dumped the body? I think so, yeah. It was, he said it was some other guy that he killed off. But then it ended up being uh, not the person who he said. I don't remember that. Wow, this is, this is. (laughs) Yeah, there were a lot of lies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was like an onion of lies. Mm. Right. It was like, oh, we're done with the lies now. And then it's like, oh, just kidding. Here's another layer. Which I think was kind of cool, all the complexity. But it was kind of like, wow, okay. So nobody was telling the truth about anything. And even our main character, Kat, was lying about her connection, which... We knew that from the start. Right. We knew that. And there were some interesting elements of that. Like, do you think that she could have actually gotten away? Like, how did nobody make the connection? It was from her hometown. I know she changed her last name, so it wasn't the same as her dad's. But was there no record on file that her sister had been interviewed? I would think that would even be enough for them to pull her off the case. Yeah, I don't I don't really know. Like maybe maybe once they figured out it was Marianne Doyle, that would be the moment that they were like, "All right, well, you're off the case." But I don't know how I mean they obviously do background checks on detectives, right? Right. Um, <laughs> <maybe>. I would hope <laughs> it's London, I don't know, but I would I would expect them to know something had happened in her past and wouldn't she have said in a like a job interview like well, there was a murder in my hometown as a child, so now I'm interested in crime. Like, you know. That was her motivation for getting into, you know, law enforcement in the first place. Yeah. And she was so buddy buddy with her um with her, her male boss, not her not the chief, but Oh yeah, like the partner right. that became so, in Pen- charge. Right. Parnell. Right. Parnell was the guy Parnell was yeah. the the father figure that was kinda of guiding her along and he actually cared for her as, you know, in a father daughterly type way. And I would think that he would know at some point you know, a little bit about her, at least who her dad was. Didn't he mention her dad in conversation and who he was? And- right. I would think that he would make the connection, that at least of her hometown. And right. if it was a somewhat small hometown, they would maybe look into it. Well, wasn't it her grandma's hometown and they were just there for the summer visiting? In Ireland? In Ireland, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Because otherwise she would have had like a really, an Irish accent. And they would have been like, Irish victim, Irish detective, hometown's the same. I think it was just Grandma's town. But her, gra- I guess if they didn't realize she had changed her name, because 
But her grandma's last name was the same last name as her dad. So maybe they no one knew that she had changed her last name. So they didn't make the connection. Because they even mentioned the grandma's property at one point for something. Is there a mention of exactly when she changed her name? Because I know she changed her name. But when that happened, was it done when she was a teenager? Or did she mention that she did it like right before she joined the force? Or Because I would think that, you know... You're becoming a police detective. You've gone through a name. If you if you went through a name change when you were 12 or 13 or 14, something like that, sponsored by your parent, you change your name or your name gets changed. When you become an adult and go into the force, that, that might not get picked up. But if you changed it right before you joined the force, it's going to get picked up. Yeah, I'm still dealing with name change stuff, and it's been a year. Like, I keep finding things that I forgot to update. I'm like, ah, oh, AAA, God, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> oh, yeah, my student loans are in my maiden name, and I've called them a million times, and oh, yeah. it's just forever going to be in my maiden name, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to update the student loan people. They can, I try. They can get confused and try to find <laughs> someone else. <laughs> I tried to help you. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, that she changed her name, it sounded like, shortly after her teen years. Possibly around the time that her mom died, because her mom died when she was 21. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. think maybe that was the separation. I do then. think I remember a line in the book where she made a comment that she, it was shortly after her mom had passed away, that she did change her name to disassociate herself from her dad, who she hated. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that was the time. So I thought there were a couple of red herrings in this book. You know, of course, in a mystery novel, there has to be at least a few, but they kept making comments about the mom. Like, oh, she wasn't the sweet angel that everyone thought she was. And so I was kind of thinking, like, maybe the dad did have an affair or the mom thought he was having an affair with this girl and then she killed or did away with Marion. Like, basically shoot her out of town because we found out, obviously, of course, she wasn't dead until much later. So maybe she, like, threatened her and, like, scared her off and just borrowed the dad's car. So I was thinking that for a while. I definitely was not, like, thinking it was going to end up being this whole big, like, trafficking (laughs) ring uh, of things. I did think that the dad was going to be involved somehow. I knew that he wasn't going to be the murderer because that would have been too obvious. Uh But I'm glad that he was involved somewhat because then that kind of made that whole storyline worth it and high stakes for Pat because she did have to make a conscious choice. Am I going to try to keep my dad out of it? Or am I going to turn him in? And so it did kind of, you know, finish up with like a nice pretty bow that he was not accused of anything. She never got found out. But I can foresee it kind of coming up again in a future book. And then I also thought that the detective Steele, the woman, there were some fishy things about her too because she's like, only update me about the case. Don't tell anyone else. Come to me. And that never turned out to be anything. But I thought that was really suspicious. I'm like, oh, she's involved in this somehow. And she needs like a heads up to warn other people about what's going on. Well, I didn't read the whole book as was pointed out earlier in the podcast. (laughs) But um, I took that as um, it was obvious that Kat had gone through some kind of breakdown. You know, she was under psychological observation. And I think that was the motivation for Steele, her, her supervisor, supervisor. You know, she's the boss of that department. To say, you know, report to me. I, I, I saw that as realistic and I didn't suspect, you know, her for anything except for being kind of a, a mentor, maternal advisor figure to Kat because 
everything that she said to Kat in personal conversations was, you know, trying to her trying her trying to pass on wisdom to her. You know, mm-hmm. you need a life outside of this this whole police thing. Is what yeah. I remember. And I guess did she did she take that advice? Uh, well, she's now dating Marianne's brother, which is a whole nother <laughs> weird. Like, what are you doing? You're gonna get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like that's, that's a no no. <laughs> I don't know a lot about police forces, especially in other countries, but I would think that dating uh, your most recent victim's brother, and you know, she's not even supposed to know him because she's not supposed to be. Right. She knows him from the past. She knows him from the past, and he remembered her, I think. And it we knew, like. I knew there was going to be some kind of connection between them, because I mean, she was attracted to him in the first meeting, and was talking about that. Yeah. So, so, they, so they hooked up. I mean, so they're yeah, a couple. Yeah, they're a thing at the end of the book. Uh, so we'll see you know, where, where that goes. And so, see, these are the things that I don't mind in a book. Like, I felt like... We got a solid conclusion, unlike when you're talking about an absolutely remarkable thing where we are left with a million questions. Like, this book has enough strings left that, you know, I'm curious to keep reading, and I actually would probably read the next book, even though I usually don't read series. But I feel like this is a solid standalone book where if I didn't read anymore, I feel satisfied yeah well i guess it depends on what you signify as a series because a series is not if a, if a book has the same you know some of the same main characters in another book that's not necessarily a series if it's a if it's a complete story you know even though you know you see you're following some characters and everything but it's not a series you're not following a same storyline it's a new storyline but with the same characters but it's i feel like there's like episodic series you know like Harry Potter. The first year, he goes to school. He does the whole school year. It's, it's We close the arc. Voldemort and wins, in quotes. Mm. But then the next year, the next book, it's still the same series, still the same characters, but it's its own little episodic moment. And it's not until later in the series that we're like, oh, this was all building up to the Horcruxes. Mm. Spoiler alert, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different. There's different kinds of series. Like there's the ones where you cannot read the next one without reading the previous one. But this is exactly what you would expect from like a crime TV show, where it's like every episode of the TV show they have a different villain, they have a different case they're trying to solve. So that's how I foresee this. But then the characters have some like underlying plot elements that continue out like throughout the whole series of the show and i think that's how this is going to be like so the next book will be a a different case may or may not be related to what we found out but of course like the dad and the sister are going to play a big role and then marianne's brother will be a part and somehow that'll all tie in again and i'm sure it probably helps to read the first book but i wouldn't call them like i wouldn't probably call the second book a standalone alone. I wouldn't know until I, I read it, but, you know, we read The Rules of Magic, which was technically a prequel, but I think those two books were completely standalone because the characters were like 50 years apart from the beginning of one to the next. So it was the same family, but could be seen like that I would call less of a series than probably what this would be. I did get the pleasure of getting the author, Kaz, to answer some questions for us ahead of time. And she did talk about her sequels. So she said, Stone Cold Heart, which is the follow-up to Sweet Little Lies, 
came out this past July, and then she's currently working on the third book in the series, and it's still untitled, but she's... She's got lots of ideas ready to go. Uh, so that's so that's really cool that the next one's already ready to go That if we want to read it. And I, I think it is cool to have a woman main detective because there are so many detective series out there. And I haven't come across too many that are women and strong women main detectives. Usually they're like alcoholics or... <laughs> yeah, or they have some other... Like the book that we decided to skip, they have some other weird thing going on. They always end up naked. Like the villain, the villain like takes like the her clothes off. Yeah, the late show. She ended up naked. Uh, like she woke up tied to a chair and naked, and that was completely unnecessary. But also, like the, her her male partner completely ignored her. Like they're supposed to be a team, and he just like whooshed, like clock in, clock out, bye. And in in Sweet Little Lies. Her partner at least had reasons to not pay attention to her because he was kind of in charge of the case and she was told to go do things alone. Uh, but in the late show, she just kept going to do things alone and it never ended well and it was just frustrating. But Sweet Little Lies, she had reasons to be alone. So no one was like, why are you being so weird about this thing? Right. That would, that would have just made them suspicious. So I found that justification very helpful. Are you familiar with Susan Grafton as an author? Not really. She writes, well, it's not a detective. She's a private investigator. Kinsey Milhone is her main character, and she's got a series of books. And her little trick is that each one is like a letter in the alphabet. A is for this, oh. is for that. Yeah, my dad was telling me about this series. He He's not a big reader at all, but... He actually has been reading that series. Yes. And it's it's an excellent... She's an excellent writer, in my personal opinion, in developing this character that is flawed as you need them to be flawed. Because, you know, it's, she's a private... She used to be a cop. She does private investigations, sometimes for an insurance company, sometimes for, you know, her own ticket. She does have issues with relationships that you would expect from a, a loner private investigator. But there's some key people in her life that she has strong relationships with. So her character's done well. She's a um, very strong female character. And she's successfully, like this this author is successfully crafting Cat. I kind of saw a lot of that Kinsey Milhome character in Cat. But Cat is like really early in the process. I, I imagine her as be, you know, before she quit the force, that Kinsey was a lot like Cat and what she's going through and dealing with. Yeah, Cat is definitely a flawed character. Because, you know, obviously she's lying about her connection to the case and protecting her dad and, and all that stuff. But I was really, really worried that she was going to end up being an unreliable narrator, which has ha- it's a very common trope right now for the, especially women, to be unreliable narrators. And the fact that it said Sweet Little Lies, I was really worried that it was going to end up like some other books that I've read, like Sometimes I Lie. <laughs> Where, you know, she uh, lied all the time. <laughs> so, you know, and then I thought, you know, with her mental breakdown from that last case, that it was kind of pointing to that. And there were some other little hints at that, like when uh, her sister said, Oh, yeah, don't you remember you really wanted Marianne to be the replacement for Ginger Spice on Spice Girls when she left? And she's like, oh, I don't, I don't remember that. Uh, maybe I don't remember everything I thought I did. Then I was thinking like, oh, maybe she's like totally misremembering all of these things from her childhood. 
And then there was the one scene where she goes to her grandma's estate and she's looking through the window and sees a little girl and she takes a picture and it ends up being like a coat rack. And then she can't even find the picture on her phone later. And she's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I was like, well, my mom said I used to get overtired sometimes and like think the wrong things. So I thought that was also hinting at she kind of hallucinated sometimes, but it didn't really ever come back to that. So that was kind of like a red herring, but I wonder if that'll come up in some of the other books. Yeah, that's that's what I figured it was set up for. Because this one was already, like, complicated enough to figure out who was lying. So I was like, if the narrator's lying to me about something, <laughs> I'm just not even going to know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seems like that would be way too confusing. So she was a, a reliable... Yeah, sure. I mean, she, the only thing she lied about was, you know, not telling her team her connection to the case. But you knew about that lie. You were in on it. Yeah, we knew as the readers what she was lying about the entire time. Right. And I was worried that that would not be the case. But I was trying to make a list of all the lies that were told, and then I kind (laughs) of had to stop because it's like, where do you even start? Because, like, you know, you have the, the prostitute. Saska? I don't know how you say her name. But she lied about everything. Like, she lied about knowing Marianne. She lied about her affair that wasn't an affair with Nate, uh, Gina's husband. She lied about so Gina's the connection. Hu- yeah. Gina's husband, I thought, he confessed to Parnell and Kat about seeing the prostitute. So he was lying to yeah, So he, he came up with that as a lie to look like, oh, look what I did for you guys to, like, take the heat off you guys and to make it look like... So he's dumb. He was a dumb character. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, that sounds like a stupid thing to do. <laughs> but he called the girl ahead of time to say, oh, here's the plan, like, you need to... Because they were her landlords. Right. And so, basically, Gina was her pimp. Ah, and right. So she, but they've been connected since the whole baby-stealing thing. Wow. So they go way back. <laughs> so they all lied about their connection with each other. Do you think Gina sent him out there to say, throw the cops off by saying you had to fail with them? Um, they both no. said that he did that on his own. And she was oh. kind of like, he was dumb for doing that. Yeah, because then Gina had her story of like, we met through this online infertility forum. Right. And she was like stalking me because I had twins. And I was like, that's right. That's weird. So they didn't realize, like, that's why there was some tension between those two because they both had two separate lies that they told mm-hmm. thinking that they were, you know, covering for themselves and theirs <laughs> did not really interact well with each other's lies. And then, you know, that's what made them suspicious. Like, oh, we found, they found out that the prostitute knew Marianne from back in the day because they found a picture of those two together. Ah. So then they're like, so it just so happens that this girl who she knew from back in the day, you happen to give her a room in this girl's apartment, and then they all claim that they didn't meet her before. So that's when they were really starting to look closer into Gina and Nate. And then Parnell went with Kat, and he recognized the old guy. Oh, the crime boss guy. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, ooh, now it all makes sense. Okay. He was sick and dying, so he kind of took the heat for most of it, which, you know, they're all going to kind of get in trouble, it sounds like. But he definitely fell on the grenade for the family. Yeah. So for him, a life sentence is like, what, a year in jail? Right, that's what he said. He's like, I got a year to live, so. Yeah, okay. And then 
we don't know at the end the sun is still out there. Yes. So he's on a run? Well, he went to go perform violin or piano or whatever it was in, like, Switzerland, Austria, something, with his school. Oh, that's the guy that, in one scene, walked in all dressed up, ready for a recital. Going yeah. To, uh-huh, right. So he went, to, he went to that, but then he didn't come back. I don't even know if he actually performed. No, it sounded like he didn't. Yeah, he just skedaddled. So he's at large in the EU. <laughs> right, and they're like, he could be anywhere, so I'm sure that'll come up in the next book as well. So in some way, he must have been warned to not come back. Yeah. Or, okay. Because he basically went and threatened Saska, the prostitute, before he left. That was the last he had been seen. And so, yeah, they, I think he's going to probably try to continue whatever other crimes they've got going on, because it sounds like they've got a lot of stuff going on. So this evil organization of crime needs to be taken down. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right then. So did Cat ever in the end of the book that she is she still at war with her dad or they have they made peace or come to terms? I think they've made peace a little bit. I mean, there will always be the underlying discomfort of like you smuggled a woman out of a town and like clearly lied to the cops about it. Mm-hmm. So, and he definitely played a role in the whole human trafficking thing. Like, yeah. he was basically, like, taking care of the apartment. He was kind of transporting the girls back and forth. So even though he didn't do any of, like, the killing or taking of the babies or anything like that, he definitely knew what was going on and played a part in it. Initially, it started because he owed Gina's dad a lot of money from a poker game. That's how he got roped into it. And then he's like, how do I get out of this? Mm -hmm. And then when Marianne was trying to blackmail him, he's like, ooh, I can get you a lot of money, which helps you, which also helps me. And that's so he actually was the whole reason that this human trafficking thing started because it was his idea. Because he's like, oh, I heard that like on the black market, you could make a lot of money off babies. So he he was a founding father to this whole baby, yeah, black market baby thing. But he's out of it before. It sounds like he's still kind of involved in some of the stuff. It wasn't clear exactly how much he still does or doesn't do, but he definitely still has his foot in shady stuff. Yeah. And I think that that's going to definitely be a source of tension. I think that Kat is a little bit more forgiving because now she she's happy she knows the truth. That he finally told her the full truth. And so she could start to kind of move on from that part of it. But I think that it's going to take a long time to heal the wounds that they had. And I mean, how do you forgive your dad? Like, okay, yeah, sure, you didn't kill anybody, but you were also responsible for this thing that was happening. And, you know, he also was under the assumption that they were going to families. And then we found out, then he stepped back from it. Uh, So he has the potential of being a sympathetic sympathetic character it seems to me from what you're telling me right so he definitely could have some redemption especially over time and it does seem like he's trying to right his wrongs like let me provide for my other daughter and her son and take care of them and so he's trying to be a good person yeah i don't want to seem judgmental but that's how it's going to come out with um, him doing that, is it really him trying to be fatherly or is it partially guilt because he know what he was involved in? And his one daughter is kind of in on the fact that he had done, you know, something wrong. It, it wasn't murder, but it's still pretty bad. So he's got a lot to answer for. Oh, yeah. I definitely think that he's not a good guy by any means. He's done a lot wrong. He's 
still cheated on his wife. Like, that still came out. Like, it wasn't, as far as we know, with a kid. Because she was blackmailing him, not because of their affair, but she saw him kiss a bartender. So that's what she was using as blackmail. So I feel a little bit better doing that, like, okay, well, he didn't have an affair with, like, a teenage girl. He was only selling so babies. So we don't get to check that <laughs> He was only selling babies. He's only <laughs> No big deal. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever. We've all done that at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and his daughter is still a cop, so yes. there's going to be a problem. Yep. Right. So I can see how that comes out in future books. There was one quote that it was on page 131. It said, the sweet little lies you tell yourself to make life more bearable. And there was like a list of some examples of like little lies that you tell yourself to, you know, make it all seem seem okay. And so I really liked how that tied in to the title. But do you think that any of the lies were actually little lies or they were all pretty major lies? They were all pretty major lies. Like even the husband who was not the killer, okay? He should have, in the first interview, came out with everything. Like, we were having trouble getting pregnant. She left home for a few months. He should have just said everything, because that's what I would do. I would start, I would give the police anything. Like, I can't be trusted to keep a secret from the police, you know? Yeah. Like, I would just spill my guts, everything that wasn't Well, that's the thing, (laughs) is that all of the suspects lied about something, either through omission, and then they came back later. Most of them came back on their own, and they're like, okay, well, I decided I should probably tell you this really important piece of information (laughs) that completely contradicts what I told you the first time, but here you go. That was my only little issue with the book, was that, like, why did all of them do that? Like, there was not one suspect that told everything from the beginning. They all had to, like, work really hard to get any information that was truthful out of anybody. Yeah. Well, did I assume Kaz did a lot of research. So maybe she talked to British cops and maybe people lie to British cops. <laughs> people lie to cops, period. Yeah. Now, I don't know you if you guys know police officers personally. The... <sighs> Depending on what you do as a police officer, but for the most part, especially detectives, you are dealing with people who lie to you every day, all day long, at some level. Because of the motivation why people lie. People lie because to stay out of trouble or to make themselves look good. And usually when a cop rolls up on you, you want both. You want to stay out of trouble and you want to look good. So that's basically all they get is people lying to them. And they they approach life that way sometimes. This person has their mouth open, which means they're lying to me. It's a realistic theme in that book. If you're following around a detective who's a little bit jaded because of who her dad is. And she knows that he's got this secret and has some kind of relationship with this teenage girl at the time. And she knows about it. He doesn't know she knows at that time. And so she's thinking her Daddy's living a lie. So everybody lies. That's what she's thinking. And it's almost expected of you as a human being on this earth to lie about anything that makes you look bad or anything that gets you in trouble. Just like she was lying to her whole police force about her dad's connection and that sort of thing. She probably saw that as an expectation almost because everybody does it. It's just incredible, though, with 
the technology that we have and the forensics that we have that anyone can think that they could get away with a lie. They must know that at some point they're going to get caught in it, whether it's through like a phone call they made or someone else's story doesn't match up. Like it's not like a hundred years ago where, you know, in the Alice Network wasn't that long ago, but even in that one, it was like pretty easy for her to get away with murder because like, all right, well, just leave here real fast and nobody will ever find me or make the connection. Whereas, you know, now there are so many tracking things. There's so many ways you can find somebody. I guess I understand where you're coming from, that they're trying to preserve themselves and their image. And obviously some of them had way more to hide than others. But Kate, like you said, the husband, it's like, well, he really wasn't involved. I mean, he had an affair, but he didn't kill her. He wasn't involved in a crime ring, so he should have just said what he needed to say and then move on. Yeah, like, he knew he was innocent, and he didn't know about any of the other stuff. So he should have just spilled his guts. He did say he was trying to protect the woman that he was having the affair with because she was a high-profile person, and he didn't want it to come out and be, like, public knowledge and look bad because she had kids. Yeah, but would the cops, if he cooperated really well with the cops let that information out. I feel like they'd be more likely to cooperate and keep it on the down low if he was really cooperative. It would be like a you know, tit-for-tat situation. Yeah, I agree with that. I was also thinking about there are so many cultural things that we don't really understand just because laws could be different. They can travel in between countries as easily as we travel between states. and they've For got, now. Yeah, for, for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> But they have, you know, all these awesome train systems and everything that they can pop it here, pop over here. Um, and I thought it was interesting, the reference to Brexit, because I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a thing that happened that really doesn't impact our day-to-day lives. Right. Mm-hmm. But to people living over there, I don't know how it impacts their day-to-day lives. It might impact it a lot. Maybe it doesn't at all, but yeah, I, I didn't even I think was, about it. I was just in London, conveniently. And day-to-day, I think right now it's not impacting a lot, but as they build up to, like, the due date, what the new one's in, like, what, October? I was going to say, there's already been a due date. Yeah, they, <laughs> they keep missing them. And so I think that the the companies are being impacted more than individuals, and once it happens, it'll impact individuals. But there were a lot of protest signs. Just the fence outside of Parliament was just protest signs against uh, Brexit. And every tour guide was like, don't ask me about Brexit. I'm not talking about it. <laughs> you know, let's talk about Stonehenge. That's what we're here for. <laughs> it's like if they came to our country and they're like, so tell us about Trump. And then, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure wow. the tour guides in New York are like, don't ask me about Trump. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not putting out his building. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. as I was reading the, the part of the book that I did read, I found myself going to Wikipedia a lot to be able to connect to what are they talking about as far as phrases that we use that were uniquely British and how not not just the words, but how things were phrased, how phrases were used. Black or white pudding. I would have to look that one up. I was it's like, like chocolate or vanilla. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no when I it looked is it not up, a dessert because <laughs> yeah, there was this one scene. It doesn't really play into the plot of the book per se, but cat um, <laughs> goes to she's in Ireland and she's like you know following she, you know on assignment trying to follow up a lead. And she's had this bed and breakfast, right? There's some people visiting from, like, the States. And the lady that's running the bed and breakfast is explaining the difference between black and white pudding. One, 
One is with blood, and the other one is without blood. So they're like, okay, toast and coffee for me. Amber's face. (laughs) (laughs) What does this mean? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, imagine breakfast sausage, but with congealed blood in it and everything. That's the black. I don't even want to know what's in the white. So, yeah, I looked that up. There was pictures and everything. But uh, there was a lot of uh, cultural education I had to do for myself to be able to understand what's going on. So did you guys find yourself uh, researching like that? No, I actually thought it was fairly American compared to some other British things that I've experienced. And I don't know if that's because I was waiting for them to have tea in every scene and scones and talk about. They did have a lot of tea. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. You know, they didn't say the loo, the lift, the, you know, the stereotypical British phrases that I was kind of sort of expecting. Yeah, there were some phrases, but yeah, they didn't stick out. I felt like the accents and the phrasing stood out way more when she went to Ireland and was talking to those people. Like, that's when a lot of that stuff, I felt, it came out. Yeah, and maybe it's maybe that was done purposefully to be like, Ireland is different rather than England. Although, in my mind, I'm like, they're so similar, they're right next to each other. (laughs) (laughs) I have some questions that we sent to the author, Kaz, before today and she was so kind to send us the answers so maybe some of these will kind of give us some insight into kind of her writing process and how she wrote the book and all that so she talked about some of her her favorite authors so one she said was tana french who wrote into the woods and the witch elm Uh, so she said that into the woods is one of the best debut novels she's ever read and she loves all her other books and then she talked about uh gillian flynn who's most known for gone girl uh, but she said that Sharp Objects is one of her favorites, and the bleakness and disturbingness mixed with black sense of humor is what she really enjoyed about it, and that influenced this book. Did you get any sort of like dark sense of humor with this book? I don't remember laughing. Well, usually no with dark to the author. Um. <laughs> well, usually with dark humor, you don't necessarily think it's funny well, to like laugh. But... I I've been told I have a pretty dark sense of humor. Um, <laughs> very like dry. No. And uh, I know, who would say that to me? I don't remember remember thinking that it was very funny, but I could just not be remembering it. Well, I found that there were some elements of humor that were macabre, but that's to be expected when you're dealing with a bunch of police detectives that are investigating murders. True. You know, and uh, that's going to be fiction or nonfiction. That's how they deal with, you know, their work. Mm-hmm. You know, this you find some of the humor in things, even though it's kind of grisly. Yeah, we do that at my job too. Uh, yeah, so that's as dark as I found. If if you want to call that dark humor, then that was the only dark humor I've, I found in there. Yeah, I thought the funniest sections were actually the flashbacks to when she was a kid, because that's what actually initially like drew me into the story. Is like her kind of sassy like nine-year-old personality and talking about the Spice Girls and her, like, sister, and, like, she's starting to kind of spy on her dad, and, like, I really liked that. That was a little bit more lighthearted to me. The other parts of the book I really 
enjoyed, but I wouldn't put it in the same category as Sharp Objects. Like Sharp Objects is probably one of the most disturbing books I've ever read. Have you read it? No, I haven't. It's also a mini series on, I believe it's HBO now. Ah, uh, yes. It, I think I did see that on my HBO Go that I'm canceling soon, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awesome. I highly recommend it. But it's deeply, deeply disturbing on many, 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 many levels. Like this, obviously, like baby trafficking ring, disturbing. But on a totally different level than someone, like, cutting words into their body as, like, a way of coping. Like, like Sharp Objects is... Pretty disturbing. Very disturbing. But I can see how Gillian Flynn is, like, inspiration for almost any mystery crime writer now because she's so skilled at the twists and the darkness and things that you just wouldn't expect. It's like, it definitely makes sense to me that that would be... Her inspiration. But she talked about, uh, Kaz talked about her writing rituals. So she wakes up every morning and she writes until the afternoon, stops for lunch, and then goes back at it for a few hours until, until her mind starts to wander. She said she wishes she was someone that could write in trains, hotel rooms, everywhere, but she has to be in her sofa in complete silence. And she has a certain scented candle and a cup of tea and then she can really get into it. So there you go. Cup There's your tea. tea. <laughs> I also have tea when I am writing. So are you guys like that? Are you ritualistic? Does it have to be a certain atmosphere, a certain whatever? No. I have to have it be quiet. Uh, so usually it's here, but there's not like a certain time of day. I just have to be inspired. Like I cannot just sit down and say at this time, at this day, I'm going to write and words are going to come out. Like I have to just feel inspired. And sometimes I go months without being able to write anything. Oh. So you don't write on a schedule? <laughs> I have many things I do on a schedule. Amazing. <laughs> but, so what about you, Kate? Uh, I can write anywhere. I do a little writing at work. My boss will never hear this, so I'm comfortable talking about it. <laughs> Sometimes we have slow days, you know? Sometimes mm -hmm. no donors come in. Which is wonderful. People are alive. Great. Wonderful. No complaints from me. Uh, and that's when I will do a little writing because I want to feel productive, you know? Mm -hmm. So I will just, I'll force it out of me. And it's not always great, but it, you know, it's words. <laughs> yeah. And you can go back and edit it later. Yeah. But mostly I do it at home. Okay. Yeah. And we asked her if she was a plotter or a panster and she said she's a plotter, which definitely makes sense yeah. when you're writing when you're a book like this. I don't know how you could write a book with so many twists and lies unless you had a plan. I bet you could if you were a pantser. It's, what makes it make sense to me is that somebody who's ritualistic will be a plotter. Oh, yeah. Somebody that needs to have a routine, I need my tea or whatever, would be a plotter. I can totally see somebody who writes by the seat of their pants have you know, plot twists and a lot of things going on. But they would have to be really, really skilled at going back and looking for plot holes because I feel like I've read so many books where you can tell that where they ended up was not where they intended to go <laughs> and they didn't go back and like change it. You see that a lot in like long TV series where at the very end something happens and you're like, well, if you go back to season one, it's clear that you did not have this in mind because that contradicts this, this, and this. Right. <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. I, w I would ask you as a favor to me to go ahead and read my novella because I'm definitely a pantser. And you'll you? be able to catch that. Oh, yeah. 
I read, I mean, I just sit down to write a story. The character comes in my head. I start writing. I live with a, uh, an eight-year-old in my house, my granddaughter. So I cannot plan. There's no planning when you have an eight-year-old. So I write whenever I can, whenever I want to. It's inspired, uninspired. <laughs> I just get it down on paper. And oh, then yeah. The inspiration comes in the editing. And I, yeah, I think there are definitely people who can be successful being a pantser. And I'll admit, my first novel, I plotted out the whole thing. I knew exactly where I was going. The one that I'm writing right now, I don't even know how it ends and I'm almost done with it. I'm a little scared. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little scary. So you're a hybrid. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like it. I'm going back to plotting. I tried the pantsing and I don't like it. (laughs) So it's going to be a lot more work in the editing stage. I mean, that's not to say when I plotted the first book, my ending changed from where I thought it was going to go. But at least when I was writing it, I had some idea of where I was going to go. Right now, I have no idea. And it needs to come to me at some point because I'm <laughs> Otherwise, I'm never going to finish the book. So, yeah. So, she said that she's a plotter and she spends four to six weeks plotting out her novels before she starts writing them and puts it into a color-coded Excel spreadsheet. Oh, wow. So she can see the pacing, where the red herring should come in, and sometimes she still goes off on a tangent and doesn't stick to the plan, but she needs to know where she's headed and who done it. Yeah, I definitely think, like I said, for mystery, you have to know, kind of... Yeah, I mean, you have to know who did it. Man. Right. <laughs> right, if you don't know, then we're definitely not going to know. I mean, I think Agatha Christie is famously a pantser who would get to the end and then almost randomly select who done it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I feel like you can tell with yeah, her. Yeah. Like her one book, then there were none. I know is like supposed to be one of the greatest mystery novels ever. But I read it. I'm like, what? If you have to spend like. 50 pages explaining to me how this person could possibly be the killer in this, like, contrived, like, oh, he had a string that, like, it was, I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Read the book and you can tell me if you agree or not. But it was so ridiculous. I'm like, okay, yeah, cool, you killed all the characters, supposedly to the reader, and we don't know who did it, and then you have to explain the whole thing in the epilogue, whatever. That was annoying to me. Like, (laughs) we should... Find out who it is, have a little bit of an explanation, not, you know, your villain speech where they have to explain it all. And it should make sense. Like, you look back and you're like, okay, that makes sense. With Agatha Christie, I feel like you're like, what? Yeah, you could definitely tell that she just made it up at the end. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, I I love the ending of the movie Clue because, obviously, the mystery movie, right? Which ending? Exactly. There's three different endings, but they all technically work because it all makes sense with the motivations so it feels pantsy you know like we could have gone in any of these directions but it was also plotty because they all technically worked right i love that yeah see that would be cool if there were you know but you can't have everything in a book i guess (laughs) not everything can be clue the movie the classic oscar winner (laughs) wow Okay. So her querying journey is really interesting. So she said that she won a big, heavy, publicized writing competition in the UK called Search for a Bestseller. So aspiring writers were invited to submit the first 10,000 words of their novel in progress. And Sweet Little Lies, along with seven other novels, were shortlisted. And then they had six months to finish the manuscripts. And she won. And she was saying that competitions are a great way to get yourself out there. And several of the other books on the shortlist have been published since then. 
So that definitely is a cool way to, to get out there. And obviously she's doing pretty well with the book. I mean, she's in the book of the month and it's been on bestseller lists, international bestseller lists. Sequels getting picked up. Yep. So she said it took her about two years total to write the book and she said she thinks that's about average for your first book when you don't have a contract and <laughs> you have a full-time day job <laughs> so her second book took her about eight to nine months and now she writes full-time which is awesome yeah mm. that's the dream that's the dream for a lot of writers <laughs> doesn't come about for many writers no. <laughs> <laughs> have to pay the bills <laughs> yeah needs some health insurance in the uk though that's not a problem. There you right. go. Just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to talk about it. That's a whole other problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are not going to get into our healthcare situation yep, in the no. U.S. Sorry, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and then we asked her, how much of you is there in cat? So she said that when her husband reads her novels, he always hears her voice. And she said, nothing that happened to Kat in Sweet Little Lies has ever happened to her. Which is good. Yeah. <laughs> but her parents are both from the west coast of Ireland, and she spent many holidays there. So there's some element of write what you know. And then because it's in first person, she said it's almost impossible to stop your personality from bleeding in from time to time. So I like to think that we have a similar sense of humor, but I'm a lot less neurotic than Kat. Although she says authors by nature are neurotic. I could agree with that. You have to have a little bit of... Confirmed. <laughs> okay. But I would also agree, because I write in first person as well, and I find myself like, okay, this is not my personal diary. I need to pull back my own personality <laughs> a little bit and not seep into the character too much. But I definitely think my personality influences my character's voice. Oh, yeah. Oh, my, my character's senses of humor are always my sense of humor, because I feel like I can't be funny if I'm trying to not be my sense of humor because I'm like that's not funny <laughs> even if someone else will think it's funny yeah I found out early on in my in when I started writing that uh, I just I thought writing in first person would be something natural I mean I'm telling a story so I'm gonna write it in first person I'm gonna be that character and uh after my first couple of meetings with the writer goes like hey you know you write in first person that's really tough to do and so I, was, I said is it it's tough to do and I found out yeah it is because of you know, that, that element that you're talking about, POV changes, stuff like that, is, is really tough to stay on top of that. But usually this one over here catches me. If I, <laughs> if I dare to bring some stuff to the group and she's like, POV, 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 that's, she writes it, that all on the page. See, I think it's easier in first person and third person. Even in published books, I catch all the time third person, them head hopping, and the character knows something that they shouldn't know, and it, I feel like it's a lot easier to miss in third person, because, you know, when you're reading in first person, or you're writing in first person, it's, like, very clear, like, this is that character's thoughts, and then if all of a sudden you're, like, talking in someone else's head, it's clear, but... But third person, usually you're like pretty close to at least one main character per chapter. Mm -hmm. It might alternate, but then all of a sudden you're like over here at this other character and it's, it's really difficult to not do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in that, in that other sweet little eyes book that I was trapped into reading by mistake because I was stupid enough not to pay attention to the author's name. That was a big problem. She was, you know, the author was in four people's heads at the same time, wouldn't tell you about changes, and it happened all in one scene. So it was it was a mess. But so, that's yeah, tough to keep track of. We are recommending Sweet Little Lies by Kaz Freer. Kaz Freer. Not, not the other one. We not we won't say her name. <laughs> Don't pull a James and, <laughs> and read the other Sweet Little Lies. Yeah. He does not recommend that one. I do not recommend that one. That is the reason why he did not finish this one because he was 
almost done with the other version. <laughs> sorry, Cass. <laughs> we also asked what was her favorite thing about Sweet Little Lies, and she said that she liked writing the head-to-heads with Kat and her dad and all the family stuff and the extremely dysfunctional family that's not representative of a typical family, but she hopes that there's something that people can relate to, whether that's sibling rivalry, favoritism, or petty arguments. And she also loved writing DCI Kate Steele. She's the woman I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I kind of got that from I. I love the Kate Steele character. I loved her motivation in dealing with Kat. And I think that the author did a really good job. I wouldn't... In fact, I would I would disagree with her in saying typical family. Said that's not typical family. She wrote typical family stuff because there's always some issue. There's always some kind of contention. There's always some tension. At least whether it's being addressed or not being addressed. Some families mm-hmm. just bury it. Some families bring it all out in the open. But it's there. I think oh, yeah. she, that family dynamic was genuine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sadly, a lot of times typical. Yeah. Maybe not at the murder level, but there's something going on. <laughs> Every family has that one guy who's like sort of helped a human trafficking ring. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> so, final thoughts on the book. What would you rate it? Would you recommend it? Who would you recommend it to? So, I would probably give it like a four out of five. Usually mysteries aren't my jam because I... I get mad that I don't figure it out before they, like, explain how it works. Because I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, the old man is guilty. Um, <laughs> he was dressed up as Santa. Uh, so, <laughs> so mystery is, like, not my personal jam. But I will totally recognize that all of the lies and everything was layered really well. Read it very fast. Good pacing, all that stuff. High tension. And I, I did like Kat, even though she lied and has a lot of ethics paperwork in her future. I, I enjoyed her as a person. And I would probably recommend it to people who, who love mystery novels, who want a female cop, and maybe even people who are into British culture. I'm not sure if I'm qualified to give it a rating <laughs> since I haven't read, but I will say this. I will finish reading the book, even though I know how it ends because of what I experienced so far I enjoyed reading the book I like the dynamic and how uh, dialogue is handled in the book I think that that was done very well and I think I'm gonna enjoy reading the rest of the book even though I know what's going on so far it's a four out of five <laughs> so that can only go up from there I think yeah you should definitely finish it even though you know how it ends yeah. you might catch some things that we missed because you know it's coming Ooh, yeah. that's true foreshadowing yeah <laughs> Spoiler! (laughs) When I suggested this book, I knew it was a mystery. I didn't realize it was a crime mystery because I try to know as little about a book as possible before I start reading it. I only read, like, the first few pages and I was hooked. And I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And I suggested to read it. If I had known that it was, like, a detective story, I probably wouldn't have recommended it because typically I, I don't like cop TV shows. I don't like cop books because there's so many of them I tend to like not find that like they all seem to feel similar but I didn't get that vibe from this book like this felt unique but I do love mysteries so this was just enough like of the mystery and not so much about the actual detective stuff that I felt hooked enough and actually it's probably probably one of my favorite 
crime mystery books I've ever read because of that. So for that reason, I would actually give it a 5 out of 5 because of the genre and where it stands in my rankings. I think this is probably the only detective crime mystery that I've given a 5 out of 5. I've loved a lot of mysteries and rated them high. Um, so I would definitely recommend this book to anybody that likes any kind of mystery or crime because it has, you know, both elements. And, you know, since there's not an unreliable narrator that <laughs> we're not eliminating all the people that are sick of unreliable narrators because I know that's a big issue right now. It's people like, no more of these, like, Gone Girl copycat stories. So definitely enjoyed it. It was pretty quick to read, like, once you kind of get into it, even though there's a lot of details and, and depth to it. Our next book is Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. So that'll be perfect timing for our October podcast if you want to get kind of in the Halloween spooky creepy horror vibe. Uh, make sure you read that book ahead of time so you can participate in our discussion. Thanks for listening to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. Join us next month to see what we thought of another best-selling book with a strong female main character. The chat doesn't end here. Let us know your thoughts in the comment area or connect with us on social media. Enjoyed the show? Share the love. Give us a review, like, follow, and a share with your friends. Find more reviews, discussions, and articles related to publishing, writing, and editing on judgingmorethanjustthecover.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace out.